I invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. From our beginning of our series in Thessalonians, we've communicated that the entire theme of these letters is Paul's teaching of Christians how to live their life until Christ comes again. And last week we began, uh, we continued in our series, but we, we began Paul's second letter to this church and we looked closely at his greeting where we saw Paul's thanksgiving for God's grace working in and through the life of the church. That Paul's thanksgiving of God's grace working in and through the life of this church. And what we see about this church is we see that this church is a persecuted church. They are suffering great gospel persecution. And we even asked ourselves the question, why write another letter? This is Paul's second letter to this church. And what we found out was that persecutions had increased. Suffering has intensified. We're going to learn later on in chapter 2 that deception had encroached in the church. They were people that were teaching false things. They were coming in and, and pretending to be Paul and pretending that Paul had said things. And so they were trying to be, they were, they were having to deal with this deception both in and outside of the church. We see where idleness had taken root. They were waiting for the coming of Christ and they were just sitting idly by. And these are just some of the things that we'll see. This is not a perfect church. This is a hurting church. And they need something. And so we see Paul's great uh, uh, pastoral heart as he pours out into the life of these people. And he, he, he addresses many of the practical and pastoral issues that we see here, but even more as we observe this letter. He continues to teach and prepare believers for faith-filled endurance until Christ returns. And this is really where we find ourselves today in the, in the thrust of that passage, of, of that thought, where he is teaching and preparing believers for faith-filled endurance until Christ returns. Paul understands persecution. He understands affliction. He understands suffering more than anyone. Therefore, I believe Paul is the perfect messenger of this word today for the church. He's the perfect messenger of encouragement and hope in believing for the church of Thessalonica and for the church today. He loves them and he longs for them to experience the wonderful grace and peace of the gospel. That's what we, that's what we talked about last week. Even in the middle of such difficult and suffering circumstances. And he knows what you and I should know, that the only way for them to find truly find joy in their believing is to see their life and to see their suffering through an eternal perspective. We talk about having an eternal perspective. Not looking here, but lifting our eyes up. It's so easy for us to look at our suffering and look at our circumstance and looking for our trial and tribulation. Those things are real. Those things are real. But what Paul was saying, lift your head up. Look, there's something coming. And His name is Jesus Christ, and He's going to make all things new. So the framework of our text today is a pastor seeking to love and aid the church in their faith in the middle of persecution and affliction. And I just want to preface this before we read our passage, is that we, in, as a church in North America, the church of Jesus Christ in North America, we know very little about what it means to be persecuted for our faith, to, be, to suffer for our faith. In the grand scheme of things, we experience that suffering and persecution because we have a world system. Not the people of this world, we have a system that opposes God. And we experience this opposition day in and day out as we work and we, and we labor for the good of the gospel. And we try our best through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, but we're met with, with, with sufferings and persecutions along every way. We, we have to war for the faith. We see that. But we know little about what it means to truly suffer for the gospel. Because we believe, we are outcast to society. Because we are believed, we are beaten and stripped of all of our, our dignity. We know little about that. But I believe this message is, 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 is teaching us 
profound things about God, profound things about the church, and it's preparing our hearts to endure to the end. No matter what persecutions or trials we may face or may not face in this world. It also should lead us to, to, to our hearts to be, to be softened to the fact that there are brothers and sisters in the Lord who are suffering immense persecution today. There are, there are brothers in the Lord who are in prison because they preach as I am preaching this morning. And our hearts should be softened, softened with the truth that they are, they are hurting and they are suffering. It should lead us to pray for them. It should lead us to encourage them. And when we hear a text like this, we long for the day when Jesus will come again. He will make things right. And so I just wanted to preface that as we, as we look in this, this text today, where we talk about gospel suffering and the justice of God. We're going to do like we did last week. We're going to read the entire uh, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians because we see this structure that happens. We see this thanksgiving of God's grace. We see this defense of God's justice. And we also see this powerful prayer of God's glory. And then we'll find ourselves uh, landing firmly in verse 5 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This has been the reading of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let us look now at verse 5. This is where we're going to start uh, our exposition this morning. And let's read again verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. When we think about suffering, suffering is often unimaginable. It's often uh, unexpected in the life of the believer. But one thing that we know is suffering is always painful. Anyone who has ever suffered, both spiritually, emotionally, physical, physically, it is always painful. There is no suffering in this world that is not painful. But what God's Word teaches us, that no matter the, uh, the truth that, that um, suffering is always painful, it teaches us that suffering is always under the sovereign Power and purposes of God. And we'll see that today in this passage of Scripture. The first point of our passage, uh, of our text this morning, is what we're going to see is the evidence of God's justice. We're going to see the evidence of God's justice. Verse 5 says, This is evidence. This is evidence of the righteous justice of God. What is Paul referring to when he says this is evidence? He's referring to the righteous judgment of God. But what is the evidence? The evidence 
it takes us back to what he is saying in verse 4. And basically he's saying this, the persecution and afflictions that these believers are experiencing are evidence of the destruction of the persecutors and the salvation of the persecuted. This is very similar to what Paul would say to the church of Philippi in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we talk about the evidence of God's justice, what we're doing here, and Paul is saying here in this, this uh, verse of Scripture, the evidence of God's righteous judgment is found in both the suffering, is found in both the suffering of God's people and the sanctification of God's people. It is found both in the suffering of God's people and the sanctification of God's people. It is shown plainly this. In all of Scripture, we see that the suffering of God's people plays a central role in God's divine plan of redemption. You can't pick up this Bible and read any story and not see that suffering plays a part. It plays a central role in God's plan of redemption. And in this context, Paul is saying that the persecution of the saints is clear evidence that God's judgment is right. The persecution of the saints is clear evidence that God's judgment is right. The kingdom of God and the suffering of God's people is so intimately intertwined that Paul says in Acts 14.22 that the believer must go through him. That must go through him. But that's not all. The believers in the church of Thessalonica had suffered rejection. They had suffered dishonor. But God's plan is fully redemptive. By His righteous judgment, we will see something amazing here where He will transform shame to honor. Shame to honor. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Those who have been rejected from being worthy members of their community, God will come and make all things right and He now considers them worthy of the kingdom of God. Their suffering was evidence of the righteous justice of God and it guarantees the glory to come. So we see this evidence shown plainly in the suffering of God's people, but also in the context of the second Thessalonians chapter 1 and, and, and this church and everything they're going through, we also see the sanctification of God's people as evidence of God's justice. God was using their persecution as a means to grow their faith, to grow their love, and to grow their perseverance. And in doing so, he is preparing this church for the kingdom of God. Paul is saying this, that God's just judgment is proven. It's made evident in the Thessalonians staying faithful and enduring steadfastly the trials and the afflictions and the persecutions which are encompassing it. And church, what we need to understand, if you step back from this, and you think about the New Testament, you'll see that New Testament Christians thought that suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ was a gift from God. Now, we don't want to take, I don't want to take too much time here, but I think it will help us as we begin to look at the justice of God and this evidence that we understand that Christianity, Christianity, to be a believer in the New Testament, they believed that suffering was a gift from God. You remember what Paul said in Philippians, for to you it has been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer in His name. It's been given to you. It is a gift from God. In 1 Peter 4.13, Peter says, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In Romans 5, 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In James 1, 2-4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what Paul is saying here is that God uses our suffering to sanctify us. And in doing so, that is evidence of God's just judgment. It is evidence of God's just judgments. Our persecutors, they think that this is going to break our spirit. They think it's going to make us turn back from Christ. That it's going to, that it's going to prove their victory in this world. And God uses it to make us more like Jesus. God uses us, uses suffering to grow us up in grace, to mature us in Christ. In so much, listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you, are, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. You see, this is a theme running through the entire New Testament. Suffering for Jesus, but rejoicing. Why? Because it is proof of God's righteous judgment. And it is a gift in which He declares you to be worthy of the kingdom. You see, God's transforming grace was preparing them for a heavenly inheritance. And Paul is reminding them of this blessed truth. And what Paul is saying is this is right. This is evidence of God's righteous judgments. This is evidence of what is about to come when the Lord Jesus is revealed. It is both the suffering and the sanctification. So that's the evidence of God's justice. Now let's look on in verses 6 and 7 to where we see the work of God's justice. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. The first part of verse 6 is very important for us. He kind of gives us this break here to where Paul is wanting them to see something very important. He says, since indeed God considers. Since God considers it just. This is a very clear and key truth for us to know today. God's judgment is in accordance to God's justice. God's judgment is in accordance to God's justice. God does right and judges righteously because God is righteous. This is key for us today. This is not merely something that God decides to do or something that God decides to be but it is essential to His very nature. It is foundational to who He truly is and will be for all of eternity. God is right, God has always been right, and God will continue to be righteous altogether. And in verse 6-7, through we see a clear picture of God's righteous justice. Let me give you an example. Have you guys ever been to court? Any guys been to court a bunch? Okay, that'd be me. All right, and I've seen all kinds of things. So um, uh, it's been uh, probably 18 years ago. I had to go be a character witness in a court session. And so the beautiful thing about court is, you know, especially small town court, you don't just get to hear your case, you get to hear everybody else's. 
beforehand. You're just kind of standing in line. And it's, uh, it can be sad. It can be funny. And so I'm going to give you a sad and funny one. I'm waiting to be a character witness at this trial. And this man is coming, and he um, is on probation. He had assaulted someone, and, and he was on a strict probation. He said, don't do these things. Well, he was being accused of taking a weed eater and attacking his neighbor with that weed eater. The evidence was stacked against him because the one that was attacked had weed eater mark, string marks all up and down his leg, and you got to see that. Again, sad but funny. And you know what? As I listened to that and I thought about everything, I was like, this guy is guilty. And then he comes out of his, his mouth. He says, yeah, I did it. I was mad at him, blah, 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 blah. You know, and then, of course, he violated his probation one, and he also committed another uh, uh, act of uh, lawlessness, right? And uh, he was arrested there and escorted. No one there, when they walked out of that courtroom, said, you know what, the judge got it wrong. You know, and, and a lot of times in our, in our judicial system, we, we often look to our judges and we elect Judges are elected because we trust them to do what's right, to rightly interpret the law. So when they hear a case and they pronounce sentence on that case or a verdict on that case, you walk away and say they got it right. But you know what? That don't always happen. You hear stories about people who are in prison and they'll be in prison 20 years and they realize that they didn't even commit that, that the judge got it wrong, the, 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 the prosecutors got it wrong, they missed something. So, so the, it is an imperfect system that we live in. But what we are walking through today is something totally different. Because God is righteous, when He righteously judges, there is no person, there is no creation that can step back and question whether or not His judgment was right. So everything that we're about to share about God's work of His justice is right. It is deserved. And so when we look at what God is considering, it says God considers, that word considers is talking about His divine judgment as it is birthed from His righteous throne. It is His birth from His righteous character. So when God says... Since indeed God considers it just, it is talking about His righteousness being displayed, being magnified. So God's work of justice is right. It's very key for us to understand. So the first part of verse 6 it says that God considers what revealed, uh, which reveals this clear tr truth to us, that God's judgment is in accordance to God's justice. And then we see this first part of God's considered justice in His righteous vengeance. It is this work of God's ju uh, justice where we see this retribution. It says here that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is right. God is just and He will pay back affliction for those who are afflicted. This word repay here is very important for us to see here. It tells us that God's retribution is in response to man's unrelenting rebellion against Him. He is paying back. They deserved, those that are afflicting deserve affliction. They deserve God's righteous vengeance. And so when God says... It is just to repay. It is right to repay. I believe there's two things happening here. We see the truth of who God is, and we also see the message for this church and these believers. I believe the emphasis on the vengeance of God here is meant to encourage the church as they face great adversity. God will rightly exercise His divine justice when He comes again. And in the verses to follow today, Paul is going to vividly describe his coming judgment. So, the first thing that we see about God's considered justice is the work of retribution. 
And then the second considered work of God's justice is His work of relief. What does the rest of this verse say? Verse 7. Let's start verse 6 when we read it in context. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. We see both retribution and we see relief. We see vengeance and we see reward. And what, what Paul is saying here is that God in His righteous judgment will reward believers with final and ultimate relief from their suffering. What Paul is saying is suffering will end. Suffering will come to an end. What you are experiencing today is a momentary affliction. It will not be forever. And what I find unique about this is the same verb was, that is used to describe divine retribution is used here to describe divine reward. It is a granting of relief. It is an exercising of God's justice. The granting of relief to the believer who has endured gospel suffering is rooted in the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a liberating act to relieve to be relieved of suffering. This is a, a liberating act of God's justice to give peace in the middle of persecution. To give joy and hope in the middle of affliction. Because not only does He help us now, I believe this is a message for this church in Thessalonica, but He also gives hope for tomorrow. Simply put, verse 6 and 7, God will reward the righteous and He will punish the unrighteous. And that is a just judgment of God because He is righteous altogether. Alright? When will this happen? Look at the end of verse 7. When will this just work of God's just justice happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. When will this happen? When will retribution happen? When will relief finally happen for this church? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. When He comes again. So we see the evidence of God's justice. We see the work of God's justice. Now let's, let's look finally at the coming of God's justice. He is coming. How is He coming? How will He be revealed? Verse, the end of verse 7 says, He will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When? What does the Scripture say? When? When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When will God's work of justice happen? When the Lord is revealed to heaven. How will He be revealed? You remember back, uh, I think that I preached this, I can't remember if I preached this or Phil preached this, but in Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, we talked about how Paul described Christ's second coming. Talked about how to be personal. The same Jesus who lived and died and rose and ascended, that same Jesus will come again. And we talked about how it would be powerful and remember the, uh, the descriptions of that powerful return. It, it will come with a shout. It will come with a cry of command. It will come with a voice of an archangel. It will come with the sound of the trumpet of God. He will come as a conquering warrior king, ready to make all things new and righteously judge mankind. And then we talked about the permanency of it. That when Christ returns, it says we'll always be with Him. It's great encouragement for the church. We see this same picture here 
but with a little bit different details. First of all, it says He will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. This is a picture of Jesus coming back with great authority and power accompanied by His mighty angels who will aid in the execution of divine judgment. It says He will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire. And in Scriptures, if we, if we just put our, our, our Bible study memory uh, to test here, we'll, we'll know that in Scriptures, flaming fire was used to describe or used as a symbol for the holy, righteous, consuming nature of God's presence. And so, in the context here of everything, I want us to see something. In the revelation of Christ's return and his, the coming of God's justice, what we see here is both power, authority, as well as the very presence of God. The word reveal here means to unveil. To unveil. What was hidden has now been revealed. And what is being revealed is a flaming fire. It is the presence of God. So what Paul is describing here is that when God's righteous judgment God's righteous judgment is not void of God's glorious presence. These things are happening all together. When Christ comes and He is revealed from heaven, when He comes, He will come as a righteous judge. What will He do? Scripture says that He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. He will rightly, He will righteously punish those who do not know God, who have rejected the gospel, and this punishment is a direct execution of God's righteous judgment for those who do not know and those who have not obeyed. Now this, if you think again about the gospel, and you think about gospel conversion in the, in, in the New Testament, gospel conversion is often referred to as obedience to the gospel. Throughout the New Testament, it's obedience to the gospel. So here, I believe that we could say that disobedience refers not to gospel conversion, but gospel rejection. And what this tells us is that the truth of the gospel demands a response. It demands a response. You either repent and believe in Jesus, obey the gospel, or you reject Him altogether. Scottish professor James Denny said, If there's any truth in Scripture at all, this is true. That those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ, incur at the last advent an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Church, God calls through the gospel, and He judges based on the response to the gospel. We see that God, God is going to inflict righteous, righteous Righteous judgment on those who do not know God and who have not obeyed the gospel. But what, is this, what does this divine vengeance look like? What is the punishment here? Let's go to Scriptures. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What is the punishment? It is the suffering of eternal destruction. It is the righteous wrath of God away from the presence of God's peace, the presence of God's grace. While the gospel brings good news of eternal life with Christ, 
The rejection of the gospel brings damning news of eternal destruction apart from Christ. And listen, church, I think it's well for us to think this. Hell is a real place. It is a dreadful reality. The final verdict that is passed down upon those who do not, do not, and have not obeyed the gospel is of an eternal nature. It is a dreadful reality for those who do not know and turn away from Jesus. It is a place of continual rebellion. It is, it is, a, it is a place of final separation. It is a place of eternal duration. You see, every all of creation experiences the beauty and the wonder and the grace and the majesty of God, even if they choose not to believe. And I love what Tim Keller had to say here. In this world, all of humanity, even those who have turned away from God, still are supported by the kindly providences or common grace, keeping us still capable of wisdom and love and joy and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. A.W. Pink said, forever, forever separated from the fount of all goodness, never to enjoy the light of God's countenance, never to bask in the sunshine of His presence. This is the most awful of all. One sin, one sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinitely eternal justice and condemnation. And it is, it is right for God to say guilty to you and I. This is the testimony of all of Scripture regarding this eternal destruction. It is the teaching of Jesus where He says, Hell, the place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. It is a place to where you are pronounced guilty and you are cast away from the presence of God. You are cursed into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Where you go away in eternal punishment but the righteous are brought into eternal life. This is clear in the book of Revelation. Where 11, Revelation 14.11 says of those in hell that the smoke of their torment rises for how long? Forever and ever. And there is no rest in the day and night. Jonathan Edwards said, when you look forward, you will see a long forever you will see a boundless duration before you which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then you will have so done when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. This is all talking about the eternal destruction and separation of the goodness from you and I who may not know God, who may have chosen to disobey the gospel of God, what we would experience if we don't turn to Christ. And this verdict is final. When Christ comes again, He will come in righteous judgment and He will repay each, each, Every one with what we deserve, which is the wrath of God. This will be a dreadful, eternal day for those who have rejected Christ. And only believing in Christ will save you. 
Only believing in Christ will save you. Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of God, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I don't believe that I can say enough about how dreadful this day is for those who do not believe. But we not only do we see punishment here, we also see a reward. What is the reward? We see a contrast here. We see the suffering of those of eternal destruction from those who do not know God. But what about the reward of those who do know God? When He comes on that day to be glorified in His sake, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. This is a contrast to the punishment for those who do not believe, to the glory of those who do. This day will not be dreadful for those who believe the gospel. This will not be a dreadful day. This will be a glorious day where our long-awaited Savior has finally come to bring us eternally home into His presence. Our faith will become sight and we will see Christ. We will be with Him. He will not only come to judge those who reject the gospel, but in His coming, He will both be glorified in His people and He will be marveled at among His people. That's what Paul is saying. He will be both glorified in His people, and He will be marveled at among His people. Paul is saying that not only will the glory of Christ be revealed, but the redeemed will be transformed. When Christ is revealed in His glory, we will be glorified He will be glorified in His people and by His people. We will not only see it, but we will share in it. This is beautiful. This is a day of full reconciliation. This is a day of complete restoration. And it is a day of an ultimate reunion where we finally get to be in the unabiding love and presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No sin to beset us. No traps. No deception. No bondage anymore. I'm not bound to my flesh, but I have been transformed by the glory of God. And I enjoy His presence forever. The final part of verse 10 reveals another contrast. The ones who reject the gospel receive the righteous judgment of eternal punishment. While the one who believes the testimony of the gospel received the beautiful majesty of God's eternal glory. See the contrast there? Now this is a message to the church and it is meant to encourage the church in the middle of their persecution, in the middle of their suffering. But in this, Paul is teaching us about suffering and the justice of God. If you are believing in Jesus today, if you have obeyed Jesus today, I think Paul would say this to you. If you are suffering and you are, you're, 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 you're working through this life and at every turn there is opposition to you, Paul would say gospel suffering is not outside of God's sovereignty. The gospel suffering is not outside of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty does not mean that suffering is easy. Suffering is hard. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that the loss is heavy, that the, that the grief isn't hard. What it does mean is that God is always in control. What did Job say in Job 1? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be His name. What is Job really saying? Job is saying that gospel suffering is not outside of God's sovereignty. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He is in control. It also means that sin and evil have no power. When we see the justice of God on display in His coming, we see that evil holds no candle to the justice of God. 
It means it has no power, it has no control, or it has no reign that this control, that this power belongs to God alone. It also means that God has power and purpose to bring it to an end. He is completely sovereign. He controls it. He has power over it. And one day He'll do just that. He will put it to an end. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more, no more, no more. It will only be the glory of glory that we see. And this is because God is completely sovereign over suffering. It also, church, is encouragement because God, gospel suffering is not only not outside of God's sovereignty, but even in the middle of suffering, God uses it to reveal His glory. God uses suffering as we see. Their steadfastness, their faith, their commitment to the Lord, He uses it, to that suffering, to refine faith. He uses it to help us rely more on Him and ultimately to reveal His glory. Remember, Paul was thankful for the grace and the peace working in and through the church. He was boasting about God in the church because of the work of salvation being done in their life. God is using their suffering for His glory. So not only is gospel suffering not outside of God's sovereignty, Not only does God use suffering to reveal His glory, the most important thing for you and I today is to land here. That our eternal destiny hinges on our response to the gospel. Our eternal destiny hinges on our response to the gospel. If this is true, there is nothing more important for our lives today. We must realize that you and me and every person we know and all the people we are around throughout all the world, all of our eternal destinies hinges on what we do with Jesus. There is nothing more important than this today. So what will you do? What will you do with Jesus today? Will you turn to Jesus? 2 Thessalonians 1 talked about those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus, who choose to live without Christ, who choose to do the things their own way. Maybe you have publicly rejected Jesus. Maybe you have verbally rejected Jesus. Or maybe you have intellectually rejected Jesus. Maybe you have even intellectually believed about Jesus. You say, yeah, I believe He's real. I believe He died on the cross and maybe even rose from the grave. You believe these things, but you continue to live your life as you are Lord. Is that you have control. Maybe you're even religious. Maybe you go to church, you're involved in church, but your life does not belong to Christ. What are you doing with Jesus today? Whether it's deliberate or it's some religious facade, If you live without Christ now, one day when He comes again, He will righteously pronounce a verdict on your life where you will live without Him forever. And as a result of this, a result of never turning from your sin and never trusting Christ as your Savior, you will die without Christ forever. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you die to yourself? Will you turn away from your pride? Will you confess and agree with God about your sin today? Will you die to your selfishness, your self-indulgence, your self-righteousness? Will you die to your sin and yourself today? And will you say, I want to live for Christ forever? Will you make Galatians 2.20 your mantra? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live for the One who loved me and gave Himself for me. Your eternal destiny hinges on your response to Jesus. So this morning, if you do not know Jesus
in the free pardon of your sin. I'm going to ask Phil if he would to come, and we're going to sing a song. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I urge you to not delay. I urge you not to delay another moment from turning from your sin and yourself and trusting to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in your intellectual knowledge. Don't trust in your performance before God. You must trust in Christ. He is the only way to the Father. It is only those who are in Christ that will be saved. It is only those who have been granted righteousness through the death of Christ by their faith that will be saved. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He alone is able to remove your sin and to restore you to God forever and ever so that when Jesus comes back, you don't have to experience eternal destruction and away from His presence. You can experience the blessedness of being in His presence forevermore. You can experience great hope for today and great hope for tomorrow. What will you do with Jesus today? This is a message to the suffering church who trusted in Jesus. And Paul was encouraged and says, God, you know what? He's in control of all of this. He is sovereign over this. He's controlling this. He has power over this. And He will one day liberate you from this. Trust in Jesus. Continue to have faith in Him, church. If you're here today and you know Jesus, I just want to urge you today to fall on Him. Cling to Him. Trust in Him. Trust Him more. Love Him more. This is not in this text of Scripture, but I believe it is applicable to the Christian life. If you believe in Jesus as your personal Savior, you will see the urgency of today. And you will share with everyone you see the bright hope of tomorrow in the face of Jesus Christ. Share the Gospel. Invite others to repent of their sins and trust the gospel. Because there's coming a day. There's coming a day when God will do what's right. And He will give us what we deserve. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation? Or are you trusting in yourself? As we sing, respond by the leadership of the Holy Spirit this morning.